integrity with the gospel, which we all need to hear about. But Hank, I want you to do us a favor. Would you, if for, if for no one's uh, benefit but my own, would you tell us what you do when you go to the office? What is an insurance third-party administrator? Be happy to. Would you explain that to us? No problem. Yeah, the, the throwaway. It's actually they're taking the tape out. <laughs> there is no tape now. Uh, I'll tell you what an insurance TPA uh, is, but first uh, I have to make a comment. I was sitting there and, and listening to the uh, angry response that Gail received. I got to think about it. You know, truthfully, he's not uh, from Georgia. He's from Texas. And then it clicked for me. That's why people struggle with his opinions. Because, you know, what people like from Texas are like. We had one move to Covington. And um, the guy, he shows up in one of the local watering holes and he orders three beers by himself. And the bartender says, well, down here we drink them one at a time. He says, well, I'd like all three of them right now. So the bartender says, okay. Pours three beers, sets them right in front of the guy, drinks one, puts it down, drinks the second one, puts it down, drinks the third one, puts it down. Partner says, I've got to ask you, why do you do that? He said, well, back home in Texas, I have two brothers, and we'd always go out every Saturday night and have a beer together. Since I'm by here by myself, I, I do that in honor of them, in memory of them. Partner said, well, that, that makes some sense. And so this goes on for months. Finally, one Saturday night, he comes in, and he orders two beers. Bartender catches it, doesn't know what to say, but he brings the beers and he starts walking. He says, I just got to ask you, did, did one of your brothers die? He said, oh, no. He said, I started going to church in a couple of weeks ago. I quit drinking. <laughs> so, that's why he gets that response. But um, an insurance third-party administration firm... We do everything that an insurance company does to, uh, from selling, issuing policies, underwriting, billing, paying claims, but we don't take risk. And we do it primarily for large employers that have partially self-funded plans. And then for a lot of insurance, a number of insurance companies, we do that for them too. Do all the backroom work. And uh, it's, we do some other things, but that's enough for now. I wanted to actually uh, make a quick comment because... Uh, as everybody was processing, I was sitting over there with Walt, everybody was processing what Gail was saying uh, regarding honoring our parents. And I think that it might be helpful if you, um, uh, if we need to change the way we think about relationships. See, what happens is we have all these relationships and we see obligations and reciprocity in them. And then we come to Jesus Christ. And he add God into the mix. And he's another relationship we have to manage. And, so we, and then we struggle with where he fits within all these other relationships. And one of the goals we have as believers is to develop a biblical mindset. And as you do that, one thing you're going to realize is that once you uh, acknowledge that Jesus is who he claims to be and that God has the place in your life that God must have, uh, all other relationships only exist as an uh, outflow of your relationship with God. Let me just very quickly, 
You relate to God. That's why he says you hate everybody else. I'm it. I'm all there is. Apart from you, I desire nothing else. It's you and God now because he's the creator God. And then you have that relationship and he says, okay, now love your wife. Train your kids. Honor your parents. Love your neighbor. And all of those relationships, um, and we tend to think reciprocity. And we have that with God because as if you'll do these things, as you've heard Gail preach, I make it worth your while. There's reciprocity. Now, there's no reciprocity in, in your, the fact that you're born into my family. That's unilateral action I take. But once you're in that family, there's, I make it all worth your while. But these other relationships, they really flow out of that one so that they're like third-party beneficiaries. And if you think of it like you and your parents, you think quid pro, that's not it. It's you and God, and he says, no, you, you do this for your parents. So that what happens if you have that mindset is you're no longer looking for what they're doing for you anymore because God's doing it for you, and you can do it. That's why all of those commands, all relational commands in the Scriptures are unilateral. As regard, if, if you're looking at it with you and the person, but the truth of the matter, they're outflow of our relationship with God. Does that make sense? You might want to process that. And we have this contract mindset, but really these people are just third-party beneficiaries of our relationship with God with no contractual rights to enforce. The party who can enforce your obedience is God. That's why when your wife doesn't submit to you, you've got nothing to say about it. That's between her and God. You've got an obligation to her that flows out of your obligation to God who's going to make it worth your while. And He's always faithful and He never lets you down. If you are in a reciprocity type relationship with your wife, they never deserve it. Eventually, you know, they just let you down. Any relationship, the people are going to let you down. So that's why you've got to take your mind and move it over to your relationship with God and everything flows from that. Now, Walt can correct me later. That's, uh, that's my take on that's, I think, how we need to think about that. Uh, to avoid getting into trouble. Um, there's, now let's go on to integrity in the gospel. There's a famous story, and I didn't verify it to know if it's true, about, but I believe it has been told to me, and I've, or I read it uh, as a historical account, there was a uh, violent criminal in England around the turn of the century named Charlie Watts. And he was a very, the most wanted man in England. He was a, uh, very dangerous. They finally captured him tried him and sentenced him to hanging. And um, as they're taking this very hardened, dangerous person to the gallows, the pastor or whoever it is is kind of reading through some scriptures and just kind of perfunctorily walking along reading this stuff as the guy's going to the gallows. And all of a sudden, Charlie Watts stops. And he looks at the pastor and he says, Do you believe that? And the guy says, Absolutely. He says, No, you don't. You don't believe that. He says, If I believed there was a heaven and a hell, and that my eternal destination depended on my relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, I would cross England on my knees over broken glass tell one person. And you're reading it like you're reading the, Monday, the Sunday paper. You don't believe it. He went on and was hung. Integrity in the gospel. Do we really believe what God says about eternal destinations and about our obligation? And if so, what's the problem? Why don't we share our faith more? And I'm going to suggest to you that in the United States, the primary reason can be found in 1 Timothy 
I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And so you might turn to that. And if someone would read verses in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. This might pick up a mic and read that to everyone. I know some of you guys can read. Okay. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Ashamed? I mean, well, maybe I don't share a lot, but am I ashamed? I think that uh, God, through Paul, puts his finger right on the problem. The greatest danger to the gospel in the United States is our embarrassment of it. It's just flat embarrassing. And so as a result, uh, we do not follow through. Uh, Often we feel like Charlie Brown, who in a famous uh, Peanuts strip uh, told his... uh, I mean, he's in a baseball game. He's on the mound. It's the sixth inning. No outs. The bases are loaded. Charlie Brown's pitching, and Linus walks up and hands him the ball, and Charlie Brown says, we're doomed. Linus says, no, we're not, Charlie Brown. We're surrounded by insurmountable opportunities. (laughs) And that's often the way we feel when it comes to the uh, uh, gospel message. Down in New Orleans, we have an expression, if you are a long-suffering Saints fan, woulda, coulda, shoulda. History of missed opportunities and uh, poorly executed opportunities. And that's the way, as I look at uh, my life and sharing my faith, many times I feel, woulda, coulda, shoulda. But uh, first, 2 Timothy verse, uh, one, 7, chapter 1, says, really, all we have to fear is fear itself. But why do we struggle with it? And, and, um, and so often as we look at evangelism, we do. It is true that God invites us to participate in what he's doing. But go, therefore, and make disciples. You will be my witnesses. Actually don't sound like invitations, do they? But sometimes it's like the old movie. You know, we say to God, you, you talking to me? You talking to me? It must be the church's obligation. But what part, I've got to ask you, what part of make disciples don't you understand? It just doesn't read optional to me. It sounds an awful lot like a command. Why don't we do it? First reason, I believe, is we feel inadequate. I've got, and I've asked, encouraged guys, and here are, the, here are the most common excuses of which I've heard over and over again. I just don't have the, uh, the uh, verses memorized. I just can't explain it well. Reading through a little book looks so stupid. You know, when you do it. Who does that besides us? Um, I don't know the Bible well enough. If they ask me a question, I'm dead. I just, uh, I just you know, something could happen. Uh, or they'll say, my life's just so screwed up. You know, they're not going to listen to me. I, may, I just make Jesus look bad. Uh, or I'm not Winston Parker. I'm not whoever, fill in the blank. And those are the excuses. We sound a lot like Moses did if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 3. And you remember the setting. 
burning bush. He's been in the desert 40 years. All of a sudden, he comes across this bush that's on fire, and it's not burning up. And God starts to speak to him. And if you know the story, God tells him about how he's going to take Moses and go back to Egypt to deliver his people by all these miracles and great power. And how Pharaoh is going to be hard-hearted, but he's going to break him, and they're going to thrust him out and purge and all this stuff. And Moses hears all this from this bush, apparently knows it's God, and he says this in Exodus 3:11. And I'm going to just read the questions. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And that's what a lot of these excuses are. Who am I? Who am I? And God's answer, I will be with you. By the way, doesn't that sound a little familiar? Right after the go therefore, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. God's answer, you're nobody. But I'm going to be there. What do you care? What do you, you know, just show up. You just got to show up. I'll be with you. In verse 13, Moses says, Who shall I say sent me? And says, I am has sent you. Which to me seems like it might be an inadequate answer, but it doesn't make any difference when you're, when you're God. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. What, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Basically, God says, that's my job. He says, because what he does is just throw your staff down and it turns into a snake. Put your hand in your chest and it gets... He says, you know, that's my part. I'll take, I will take care of whether they believe or not. You just go. Then, so Moses, he sees that base and he, and he asks another question. Chapter 4, verse 10. Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, for I'm slow of speech. God says, who made your mouth? I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. He says, I knew that before I asked you. Jesus knew about us before he said, make disciples, be witnesses. Then Moses makes the big mistake, and this is the mistake we so often make. He goes one question too far in verse 13 of chapter 4 of Exodus. But he said, please, Lord, now, send the message by whomever thou wilt. Can I pay my pastor to do it? <laughs> He's eloquent. Go ahead, and I'm in favor of it, but use someone else. And then it says this, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. He said, and he ends it by saying, Aaron's coming and I'll be with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Moses goes, don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake because God doesn't like you to say, send somebody else when he wants you. See, one of the problems is we tend to think of evangelism as an event and it depends on us. And that's not the right picture. Um, God's doing something in someone's life. It's a process. And you're just playing a piece of that process. Like when I used to, in my former life when I was an attorney and I, uh, I handled trial work, I, I'd go get all these witnesses for these trials. And I never had a witness say, but, but I don't know all the facts of the case. I can't get up there and understand. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? And, and that's silly. So I've got a bunch of other witnesses. I just want them to hear what you know. And I'll put the rest of it together with other people. I just want them to hear your part. And that God's saying the same thing to us. If I give you the opportunity, I want them to hear what you've got. I'll fill in the blanks with other people. I've got other laborers. You just tell them what you know right now. That's what I want them to hear. You don't have to worry if you don't know it all. Oh, it's kind of silly to even think that way. 
Luke 7, 22, Jesus tells a couple of folks, and he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. That's all he wants to just tell them what you know. Don't worry about what you don't know. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 15, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. Not everything, but what I had at the time. God will fill in the other blanks with other people. You just play your part. If he gives you an opportunity, by definition, he wants him to hear what you know. And he must not want him to hear any more than that at that time. So it's okay. Whatever you know is going to be sufficient because he's in control. And I'm going to tell you a dirty little secret, by the way, regarding the methods of evangelism and the message. They really aren't nearly as critical as we think. You say, well, which, which method works best? They all work. There's no evangelistic method that doesn't work. I've been involved in most of them in my, in my 30 years with Jesus. I've seen guys do it on street corners. That's one I haven't tried. But it works. I've seen guys come to Christ that way. On planes, with booklets, evangelism explosion, door-to-door, surveys with Campus Crusade, friendship evangelism, evangelistic Bible studies, sharing your testimony, stadium events, Gideon's Bible. I have a buddy who came to Christ through a Gideon's Bible in a hotel. Radio and TV evangelists. It all works. Doesn't make any difference. Whatever you're comfortable with, or whatever opportunity, you just it, there's no. It's really not an issue. And the message, we work, and I encourage people to work hard, because the uh, Paul tells us, "For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation." The, there's God uses the gospel message in people's lives to bring them to Himself somehow, and that's the other part of the puzzle. I mean, yeah, there's election, but there's also free will, and we share the message. Both are true. They don't. They don't uh, make sense to me, but they're both true. So it has power. So I work hard to get the, mos- the gospel message down right. I mean, I memorize the verses. I've gone through almost every one of the uh, evangelistic training techniques and tried them all, and they all work. Because it's, it's a love of mine, and I want to do it well. But guys, it really isn't that important. Because I've led people to Christ when I started in the middle of the gospel and worked out in both directions. I mean, I just wasn't there, and all of a sudden I was in a situation, and I, you know how you've been there, and you just start sharing, and it's coming out all crooked, and they come to Christ. And, um, and if you want to get a little affirmation of this, all you have to do is go through the New Testament and listen to some of the gospel presentations that were made. They really stunk. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. They were poor by our standards. Um, Part of the interesting thing is that we, our big methodology is substitutionary atonement. You're a sinner. Everybody is. The wages of sin is death. You can't earn your way to heaven. God so loved you, He sent His Son, lived a perfect life, so He did not deserve to die, to die although you did. He offered Himself voluntarily on the cross, paid the price for your death, and He gives that to you as a gift if you accept it by faith. Substitutionary atonement. You got a problem, God solves it through Jesus. You just have to accept that there's nothing you can do for it. Free gift. That's what we, and that's, and it's accurate. But that's pretty recent. <laughs> Listen to some of the presentations made in the New Testament. Romans 10 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Or whomever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, Paul, could you put just a little more meat on the bones there? That's really not enough. I'm not sure if someone did that, they'd really go to heaven. Could you do more? Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Come on, Jesus, you could do better than that. It's not very clear. Believe in you for what? 
What's the problem? What's the solution? What about the resurrection? Or how about this popular one? Try this one out sometime going door to door. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. It worked. Or this really clear one. Follow me. Most of the apostles preached purely the resurrection. Um, and if you, by the way, and I'm not going to take time this morning because we, um, we're running a little late. But if you went through John 4, the woman at the well, not very clear. By our standards, evidently it was clear enough for God. He determines the content that he wants someone to hear. Uh, in, in, the, in the exchange with Nicodemus, you must be born again. Uh, he who believes in me. For what? You know, he, he preached the kingdom. And the apostles said, this, and Paul, I mean, uh, Peter before the Sanhedrin, this Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health, and there is salvation by no one else. Come, Peter, tell him the rest. <laughs> That's not, you're leaving too much out. Maybe not. Uh, Acts 2, the great, where, what, Two, three thousand, I forget now, three thousand people come to Christ. He tells them the story and he says, Now they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Okay, bow your heads and pray after me. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I need to repent. No. And Peter said then, Repent and each be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus in view of the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter, you missed your opportunity. All those people went to hell. They just thought they were saved. Right? Maybe not. You get the idea? I said, I think yesterday we were talking and the question and answer is, God pulls Abraham out and says, you can have a lot of kids and this is going to be your country. Abraham says, I believe you. God, shouldn't you have told him about you were going to send a Savior, he's going to pay for his sins, and if he would trust in the future coming of Jesus Christ? See, Jesus is the basis for salvation, but God really determines exactly what you have. To, you just have to believe what he gives you. Abraham, he tells him that. It says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God says, you're saved. So he put, I mean, work on the content. But guys, if you don't have it straight and you get an opportunity, spit out whatever you got. And it'll work. Because that's what must be what God wants them to hear right then. It's perfect by definition. He wants your content. And, and by the way, if you feel inadequate for these things, uh, it's because you are. You know, you have an inferiority complex because you're inferior. <laughs> God says, but that's okay, I'll be with you. I made your mouth. He didn't say, by the way, no, Moses, you are eloquent. He says, I know you're not. I made your mouth. I know you're not eloquent. That's okay. I'll do it anyway. The next thing we don't like and we feel inadequate is we're really helpless to convince anyone. And as a man, I like to manipulate and get things I can take credit for. You know, I really, I don't want you to give me anything back. Sometimes when you help somebody, they resent you for it. And so I, I want to I play a part. And God says, no, if anything happens, you didn't have anything to do with it. You were just standing around when it happened. For the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He says something I'm doing. And you cannot argue them into the kingdom. And I have tried to do that. I've pressured people. And I'll, I'll guarantee you, I've gotten some commitments for Jesus Christ that weren't legit. Because I pushed them to do something that they weren't ready to do. The Holy Spirit wasn't moving at that place. Remember that Jesus told his disciples, You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Which, by the way, if I was standing there, I would have been going, Excuse me, you're not that tough. 
But that was the truth. They just, from their perspective, they chose him. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. We're dealing with a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ who is described as blind, lost, harassed, helpless, slaves of Satan, dead. And by definition, dead means no ability to do anything. Without hope and without God, they're only reached by God's action. You just give them the message and God does something miraculous. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, My message and my preaching were not in wise and persuasive words, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I don't like being helpless. And I don't like being able to brag when somebody comes to Jesus Christ. But that's where it is. We're just inadequate. We just show up. That's why we pray. In Colossians 4, it tells us pray for opportunities, pray for boldness, and pray that you're clear in your presentation. In, in uh, 1 Timothy 2 and Romans 10, pray for their salvation. Because it's something God has to do. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. Well, we also don't like it because it's countercultural. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over for side two. I mean, I had a, a discussion with my barber uh, just last week, who's somebody I've been sharing with for 12 years. It's not come to Christ. But he was complaining about the narrowness of Christianity and the fact that he says, I, I believe something different, but I don't think you're wrong. And we had this long discussion about how truth, you know, we can't both be right at the same time anymore that we can both occupy the same space at the same time. It was a great discussion. But it's countercultural because culture says it's a private matter. You're intolerant. My truth is as valid as your truth. You're narrow. You're no fun. You're hypocritical, etc. Gee, you mean the gospel's an offense? shouldn't be surprised. But I'll tell you, um, the interesting thing is that Jesus Christ is both timeless and cross-cultural. So if you want to be relevant, just get close to Him. You don't have to act like the youth culture. I work with teenagers at our church, and I don't try to pretend to be uh, 18. You know, I'm close to 50, and I'm not going to change. But the closer I get to Jesus, they like to be around me because you're relevant. So he's cross-cultural. But you, you're going to go against the culture. No question about it. And they're going to come after you. We'll appear weak and stupid. We don't like that. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul tells the uh, Corinthians that uh, the gospel looks weak and looks foolish. That's why the Vikings struggled with accepting Jesus Christ. He looked like a weenie to him. I mean, he went voluntarily. should have gone down swinging. And, and it looks, it's so silly, you know, and I have, um, I have a good friend and I love him. He, he came to Christ and he told his wife and he said, I said, well, how'd she take it? He said, she just about patted me on the head. I said, oh, that's so wonderful, honey. So good for you. It looks weak and it looks foolish. Paul's told him, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much troubling. And that's, uh, that's just the way it's going to look. But to those who are saved, it's the power of God. But we don't like to look weak and foolish. I don't. The next problem, uh, and the reason we don't share, is because we're too stinking smart. You know, you read a passage like 2 Timothy 2.3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And we can figure out that doesn't sound like fun. 2 Timothy 1.8, Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Well, it's, it'd be like joining the Marine Corps, except for the weak and foolish stuff. 
<laughs> you combine the two and it doesn't sound like much fun. It's going to be hard. We're in a war. And if you've heard Christians say that most of the church is on R&R, that is not true. Because we're behind enemy lines, guys. It's not an issue. You can't be on R. You're either fighting, you're captured, or you're a casualty. You're not on R&R. Because you're behind enemy lines. There's no R&R behind enemy lines. You better realize that. If you're in a war and you're not fighting it, think about it. It's just flat hard to swim upstream. Like uh, Walt shared with us, you go weary in well-doing. It's tiresome. Paul says in Colossians 1, 28-29, And we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. We like to read about the His power mightily working within me, but we stumble over that toil and striving. <laughs> and by the way, those words, that toil... If you look it up, it is hard, gritty, dirty, sweaty, where it has a sense of sweating, exertion, difficulty, resistance. And striving was a term, if you went to a wrestling match, come watch two guys striving. It's a term you could use for wrestling. If you've ever wrestled, and, we, and growing up when I did in the rural south, you wrestled all the time. And I'm going to tell you, you get in the ring with somebody today. If you don't believe me, go outside and start wrestling somebody. You get tired in about 30 seconds. Because you exert, every muscle is exerted. And he says, that's what it's like. That's what it's like. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. That same, that toil is the same word. That your difficult labor, tiresome, wearisome labor is not in vain. Uh, so you can let go and let God, but it's still going to be hard. It's, you're doing it according to His power, which is mightily working within you, but it's still hard. And we're smart. There are seven realities within the people business that most folks can think of, and that's why they don't do it. People are going to lap you in the race of life. If you go to them and say, I can't work 12 hours a day because i got Bible study, they're going to promote somebody else. It's going to, you know, they're going to lap you. Things, Energies that they're pouring into their job and career, you're going to be pouring into your relationship with God and to people. And that's just a reality. It's going to cost you money. Lunches, conferences, giving to uh, missionary work, uh, being honest, <laughs> paying all your taxes. It's going to flat cost you money. Any way you slice it. Jesus said, and I say to you in Luke 16, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, and it will fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He says, take the currency of this world, whatever is of value, and trade it for eternity by investing in people's lives so that when you get to heaven, they're there and they're glad you were helping them. That's what he says. He refers to it as a little thing in verse 10 of Luke 16. And he says in verse 11, if we don't get it, and if therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust true riches to you? It's monopoly money. You trade with something that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, and you've got an opportunity to, to gain something that really does matter. See, everything we have by way of resources are utilitarian to gain the eternal. That's just the truth. And, and, and God wants you to about, be about bringing people to Himself. So it's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you money. You're going to get tired. I love the story when Peter comes, I mean, Jesus comes across Peter, and he's been fishing all night. In Luke 5, 5, and, P and Jesus tells him, 
drop the nets. And Peter goes, and Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your bidding, let down the nets. I mean, I could hear him saying, you know, Jesus came from the equivalent of Iowa. <laughs> be like, come to Louisiana and say, well, no, here's, what, here's how you fish. We say, hey, I tell you what, you go back to the farm. <laughs> we know how to fish down here. But he did it anyway. It didn't make any sense to him. Been fishing all night, but he did it anyway. Oh. And then Jesus tells in tells Luke 17, starting at verse 7, But which of you, having a slave plowing and tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately, sit down and eat. But will you not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, properly clothe yourself, and serve me until I've eaten, and afterward you can eat and drink. And he doesn't thank the slave. That's a picture of us. But I worked hard all day. We've been fishing all night. See, just about the time you want to kick back, kick back and relax, Jesus says, let's go fishing. And you're tired of doing it all night. And life with the nets gets wet and tangled. It's messy when you're fishing. People's lives are messy. It's not convenient. It's every day. There's, you know, it's just hard. That's just the reality of it. It is hard. But it's worth it. God says you won't regret it. Time management... Fourth reason, uh, fourth reality is time management is more a dream than a reality. That's why when you read Paul reading to, writing to the Corinthians, he says, I intended to come to you in 2 Corinthians 1. I wasn't vacillating when I intended to come, was I? See, because his schedule was at God's mercy. Now, and I, I encourage you, build margin into your schedule. But you work for somebody else and they own your time. And so they're going to, you know, that you may be have margin scheduled in and somebody's going to call you whose wife just left him. Who's got a real business problem. They, you know, they got a loan called. And you got to decide who owns your schedule. You probably won't be as popular. You can be very popular if you act like a Christian and don't tell people about Jesus. But when you get involved in evangelism, you know, I've had guys say, hey, I really like being with you, Hank, but we don't have to talk about this anymore, do we? <laughs> They liked everything about me, but that was offensive. And so, um, you will not be as popular. If they hated me, Jesus said, they're going to hate you. The sixth reason. You can't measure your participation. I don't know if your business is like mine, but we measure it every way Sunday. we got ratios. We've got uh, reports. We have our chief financial officer do graphs. We know how many customer service calls came in, how many claims everybody's paying. We measure everything that we can measure. The salespeople, how many calls they made, all their activities, how many results, how many people dropped out of the all that stuff. And here where God's telling us to do something you can't measure. And it's frustrating. You never know how you do it. In fact, it's so bad that Paul is in Second Timothy saying, don't be ashamed of me. I'm a, bit of, you know, a failure, essentially. It looks like I failed. He tells uh, uh, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, You're our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, um, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You can't measure that. You can't count it. You don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. You don't even know what's going on in your own heart. You don't know if you have any impact or not. In somebody's life. And they may be on fire, and then three years later, where are they? I mean, just, it's very difficult to measure. The last thing is reality of being in the people business and getting involved in evangelism is you're going to have a greater accountability. 
Because once you tell them and affiliate yourself with Jesus Christ, they're going to watch you. Because they expect you to be a hypocrite. That's what's in the movies. That's what's on TV. That's what everybody says. So they're just watching you. And so you got this. You can't afford to ever let up. You can never, you can't be rude to them. I have this rule that I try not to do any, and I've had to fire people and everything. I try not to do anything with someone that I could not share Jesus Christ with them afterwards. And that doesn't mean I'm not doing something hard, but I want to do it in such a way that I don't lose that opportunity. But they'll be watching you, and it means you're just not going to be able to act the way that's more fun sometimes. Because you're reflective of who Jesus is. If they find that out, they'll associate him with you. Well, how do you pull it off? If, you, if, if the price is that difficult and we're that inadequate, the only way is if you see gain in it. You're going to need to look at life through God's perspective and understand that He's a rewarder. You know that uh, without faith it's impossible to please God. And anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You must believe that. Or are you going to drop out because the price is too high? But if the payoffs... I do some pretty hard stuff in my business if the payoff's good. And the payoff's good. Payoff's real good. I also tell you, you need to, if you're going to pull it off, you need to change the way you look at it. it. Evangelism, see, it's not something you do. I came to Jesus Christ as a freshman at SMU, and within about three or four weeks, they had me at the Love Field Airport doing religious surveys and sharing Christ with people. It, and, and it was that was very good, and of course it was a near death experience for me. <laughs> but um, at that time, but it made me start to think about evangelism as an event, which is it really isn't, and it's something you do. But it is not something you do; it's someone you are. Jesus said, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." You won't go fishing; you'll be a fisherman. And um, we have fishermen down our way. And you don't have to tell them to go fishing. They, when they're not fishing, they're working on their boat. They're checking lures out. Uh, they're telling you about the last trip, how they really got into them and how much they caught. If you go to their house, you eat fried fish. You know, they're fishermen. And so they just fish. It's, what they, it's who they are. It's what they do. It's not an event for them. It's their life. It's their identity. And that's what Jesus says. If you follow me, it'll be your identity. He says, you will be my witnesses. You won't witness, you'll be a witness. I'm an LSU fan. You come down there during football season, you go hear about LSU. It's who I am. You don't have to tell me to do it. It's not an event, it's something. Now, weeding, that's something i got to go do. I'm not a weeder. But my wife makes me weed in the yard. And it's very different from here uh, because they grow up everywhere. I said, tell you, you can't get stuff to grow here. And I got to weed my driveway, my concrete driveway back home. And it just grows everywhere. It's water and, and uh, it grows on your roof if you don't clean your gutters out within about three months. It's just amazing. But I'm not a weeder. I just weed. But I am an evangelist. And so are you. There's only one kind of Christian. There's not two kinds a fisher of men. According to Jesus. So if you're not fishing, you're not following. And if you're not following, you might want to take a look at your relationship with God. Can't tell you what that means, but I don't know that I want to find out. What Jesus says in John 15, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I don't know what that means, and I could argue with you whether it's a loss of reward, but why would you want to go there? (laughs) I don't care what it is. The problem is, though, you know, we're like the uh, polar bear cub. 
because we want to be a fisherman, but the polar bear cub asked his parents, Mom, Dad, am I a polar bear? What are you, crazy? You're all white. you got a snout. You live, you know, in, in Alaska. Look at me. I'm 100% polar bear. Look at your mom, 100% polar bear. You're our kid. We were both there when you were born. Look at your brothers and sisters, all 100% polar bear. Your grandparents, polar bears. Your aunts and uncles, all everybody's polar What the heck would you ask a question like that for? Because, Dad, I'm, I'm cold out here. Because <laughs> I'm not fishing. But you're a polar bear. You're a polar bear. Because God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We used to have an expression back home, you know. When they gave that, Leroy's got the ball. <laughs> In the backfield, they gave that halfback the ball. Now, he could not want to run with but something bad was going to happen either way. God has given you the ball. You better, you're going to get tackled. You might as well run with it and make some yardage up. Because you got the ball. You need to think of yourself the way that God thinks of you. You're an ambassador. You're a laborer. You're a servant. Really, the only, as a servant who is owned by God, who bought us with a price, here's the question you ask every day. The only legitimate question you got. What do you want me to do today, Lord? So, any other questions are legitimate. What do you want me to do? It's this time. Your life. Your life is his life. And if you're an ambassador, by the way, that's a great illustration, and it was mentioned already, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. The ambassador for the United States to Mexico is the ambassador all the time, not just eight to five. He cannot afford to spit on someone, <laughs> to tell somebody else. Everything he does reflects on the United States. Well, the same thing. Everything you do reflects on Jesus Christ. That You're an ambassador. Think of that. That's the way you're a witness. You just get that identity, and you get it by spending time. And you start looking at yourself the way God looks at you. And that's how He looks at you. That's what you are. It's a transformed view of yourself to a biblical mindset. And um, if you hang around with Jesus, by the way, you will become what He is. And He came to seek and save that which was lost. So that's what you'll be here for. Uh, it's like you become like a... When you become a high school senior, you know... you. You have that mindset, I'm going to be out of here. You know, when you become a Christian, I'm going to be out of here. This is the home, so I just do everything I can so I can get out of here and go on to eternity. Um, you know, got to remember that God will reward us. Each one will receive a reward according to his own labor. He makes it worth our while. But if you hang with him and you really love God, you will start to tell people about Jesus Christ because you'll love them. You'll love them. And... Um, what happens is you start to care about the things that Jesus cares about. And if you think about it, um, I tell people, I did not really, I, I wasn't sure what three events were involved in a triathlon five years ago. And now I get inside triathlon magazine, triathlete magazine, runners. Were, I hang around with triathletes. We talk about the big events. We practice all, you know. I hung around with these guys and I started to catch what they had. I caught their disease. And if you hang around with Jesus, you catch his disease. You catch the same disease because that's what he cares about. And Jesus in Second uh, Corinthians 5 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who, have, um, who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus' love for people compels us to have love for people. And he gave great illustration in Luke 15. He tells them this story that is absolutely absurd. Guy has a hundred sheep, 
One wanders off. He leaves 99 of them. He goes until he finds it. And then he, he just looks and looks to find this one sheep. All the rest of them, who knows what's happening to him. He finds it and he throws a big party. You know, that's stupid. All his friends come over. He has to slaughter three or four sheep to pay them. You know, to feed them all. The one sheep's not worth that much. It, it isn't. If you do that, you, you know, it, it's absurd. And they're going, what the heck is he talking about? Nobody has that kind of value. And then he tells another story about coins. Lady has ten coins, loses one. Ransacks the house until she finds it. Then she's so ecstatic, she throws a big party, spends the other nine to pay for the food. You go, that's absurd. What he's saying is that people are worth more than you would ever guess from being around them. A coin and a sheep is not worth that much from being around. It just isn't. But it is to that guy. And that guy is Jesus. Coin's not worth that much. It is to God. He says, their people are worth way more than you could ever imagine. They have huge value. i got stuff in my house that if you came over there, it looks worthless. I have a couple of t-shirts. Don't touch them. Those are my favorite. Don't, you know, they're my favorite t-shirts. They're comfortable. They have no real value, but all this value to me. And God says, they, I don't care what they, whether they look like it or act like it, they have huge value. And, um, and I value them so much that you're going to value them too, if you hang with me. I told uh, that I got, uh, very quickly, I bought Cheryl this sedan a couple of years ago. She's been driving minivans forever. Finally got her sedan. She just loves it. It's really important to her because it's a car she can, she can see out the back of to park. She's not real good at that. And she just, you know, it's comfortable and she's just, hey, you know, like I said, she's like most housewives. It's the first comfortable car she's really probably ever had. And she loves it. Well, what if I came home one day and she parks it right by the back door? And I went and got the shovel and started wailing away on it. Stinking things in my way. Really aggravated. Every day, it's in my, I gotta walk around it. She says, what are you doing? I love that car. I know, but it's in my way. Don't you love it? Yeah, I love you. And she'd go, well, if you love me, you won't damage something I love. If you love Jesus, you'll love people. You'll put that value on them. Because the Lord's portion is people and Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. You will value what he values. There are two commands. Love God and love people. They're not multiple choice. They're not multiple choice. In fact, God says, if you don't love the man you can see, you do not love me. And that's what Gerald said. If you don't love the car, you don't love me because you know how you... Any idea how much that means to me? When you really want to hurt somebody, you go after something they really care about. That hurts them. Find out what they care about and go after it. God cares about people. And so, you just want to remember that Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. You know, lift up your eyes, the fields of white to harvest. It's as important to Jesus as food. If you hang with him, if you abide with him, you will become enamored of the same thing he is. You'll become, as you become, fall in love with Jesus. You will fall in love in what he falls in love with. And you'll develop his sight. I mean, he looks at Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, which you would not. I look at it, I look at New Orleans and go, what a mess. Crime. I don't want to go in there. I want to live out in the country and the suburbs. Man, it's full of people, though. God loves it. So, uh, two last points. God's method is you got to open your mouth, guys. I don't care what St. Francis may have said about share the gospel and if necessary, use words. It's always necessary. 
It's revelation. You don't get there by reason. That's the point of the God. God had to reveal it. And how, how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless there's a preacher? you got to tell them. They will not figure it out. Don't confuse them with a great life. Open your mouth. And Satan's weapon, all he says is not now. Not now. Just this isn't the right time. If you have the opportunity, by definition, it's the right time. Take it. Go for it. Don't push them any farther. Do it with gentleness and reverence. If they don't want to hear a lot, stop when they don't want to hear anymore. Go as far as they'll let you. That's your opportunity. But if you're not sharing, something's wrong with you because it's not natural. You're either sick, stunted, immature, or not saved yourself. But if you're not sharing Christ, something's not natural because followers of Jesus become fishers of men. And um, and just do remember, uh, God gives you this great opportunity. He says, I'll, it's like a sales position. Think of it this way, and we'll close on this. He says, we don't, when we hire somebody, we say, you get, the, you get the opportunity to come here, you make your appointments, you go out and make presentations, and we'll pay you based on what you sell, essentially. God says, I'll make the appointments. You just show up, work on the presentation, but whatever you got is going to be fine at the time. You share it when you get the opportunity. I'll meet all your needs. Don't worry. By the way, the reward is based on if you make the presentations, regardless of whether they respond, I don't care if anybody ever buys. Results are not important to me. You just do it, and I'm going to reward you based on just having shared it. You know, we don't do that at our office. <laughs> That's a great deal. How could you pass a deal like that up, guys? Let's close. Heavenly Father, uh, draw us to yourself so that we'll be drawn to the things you're drawn to. That uh, we will love the things that you love. Help us, Lord, to overcome these obstacles and invest in the things that you're doing in this life. And it's a life of sharing Jesus, bringing people to yourself. A ministry of reconciliation, Lord. Don't ever let us put that on the side, but make it a priority. In Christ's name, amen.